So we're on chapter 9 on worship. And uh, again, it's um, odd to us to use the word discipline regarding worship. We don't think of worship as a discipline. And yet, I hope to demonstrate that it is, and our author does demonstrate that in this chapter. So he starts with the problem. The problem is the mistakes being made in, in worship. For example, the examples he gave were videos of buffalo herds, secular music being introduced to uh, the worship of God, puppet shows, jokes, silliness, are all not appropriate for the worship of God. That people in our culture work at their play and play at their worship. Uh, people are very serious about their golf game, uh, but they like a relaxed, silly environment for worship, and they have it backwards. Everything is evaluated by how it affects the attendee, the human, and it terribly corrupts our view of God, therefore our theology, our study of God. So the danger is that when it becomes man-centered worship, quick test, how could you tell if it was man-centered worship? If you leave and ask yourself or ask others, what did you think of the service today? Instead, we should be asking, what does God say about worship and those who worship him? So the solution is God-centered worship. Worship must be God-centered. Getting a spiritual lift is not the goal of attending a worship service, but having peace enter our souls and having a spiritual lift are byproducts of true worship. So for Christians, true worship is a top priority in our lives. The church must worship, and we're part of the church, so it's a central, important part of our lives that we cannot neglect or skip. Uh, For example, John 4.23, the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Did you catch that? God is seeking true worshipers, John 4, uh, 23 and 24. God himself desires worship above all else, and he's looking through the world, seeing who will offer him the true worship he deserves. Or consider what Jesus taught when he said in Luke 10, 41 to 42, familiar uh, words to us. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Luke 10, 41 to 42. What was that? What was that one thing that Mary has chosen that will not be taken from her? To sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him. Christ Jesus is present in our worship service in a sense in which we are sitting at his feet, hearing him by his word and spirit. So it's better than all the things that we, like Martha, are so worried and upset about. Worship is what we need because worship is where God shines his light and meets with us. Uh, Revelation 1.20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's a place to give out light. It's a lampstand. We give out light. Uh, Christ gives light to us and to the world. So do we approach worship as Christ desires? So to do this correctly, a couple of hints now from our chapter to prepare ourselves for worship week by week. True worship requires some preparation, not just brushing your teeth. Advanced preparation begins actually the previous day. On Saturday, 
and you start preparing for Sunday worship, basically preparing by physically getting rest, even setting out our Sunday clothes so we don't realize, oops, I forgot to launder or press that, finding our Bible lessons, waking up at a good wake-up time so that we have ample time to fuel ourselves, good breakfast foods, planning for the best time to leave for church, there's not scurrying and concerns. More importantly, it's preparing ourselves spiritually. We can pray for ourselves, for our family members, for the preacher and others involved in the worship service and get ourselves into the frame of mind to meet with our creator himself. So we're starting um, to see how worship can be a discipline, right? The thing that we started off with, how can worship be a discipline? Because it takes some effort. It's helping us to change what we expect to happen in a worship service. The promise of God warrants that we expect nothing less than a heavenly blessing in God's worship. We expect to worship in truth. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, John 4, 24. We must worship in truth. To actually come to know the God of creation and the God presented in the scriptures as our redeemer. We come to know the truth of his word about power his power. We expect to worship in spirit. Uh, Worship is internal. What's going on in your heart? You might stand, you might sing the right words, but is your mind there thinking about those words? It's a spiritual act when we worship. Uh, Do you think about God throughout the service? Maybe a better question is, do you think about God throughout the week so that you cannot wait to meet with God on Sunday in worship. Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord. Listen, more than the watchman waits for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. It repeats it twice. I don't know if you've ever been on um, night duty. <laughs> I have. That's an intense longing for morning and for shift to end. Uh, do you have that intense longing for a meeting with God? We're too passive in approaching worship like spectators attending a movie or a concert. Uh, worship is very active. Worship is disciplinary. It's, uh, I, mean, I should say it's discipline because it's work. <laughs> it's effort. We work at our worship with discipline. 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen, Paul wrote, I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. To keep your mind engaged as we go through each of the verses takes conscious effort. Here are the activities of worship. We read, listen, confess, pray, sing with our minds, concentrating on the words. Give, think, reflect, be silent, follow, take notes, digest, apply, make decisions to respond, believe, obey, receive grace, praise. That's a lot of things that require effort and at least our minds focus. So working hard at worship is a pathway towards gladness and joy in worship. What type of worship is identified in Romans 12.1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our bodies, and yet spiritual worship. So we're supposed to attend with our actual bodies, nothing against live streaming when needed, but you see it's a gathering, it's actually going, but it's not enough to just go. Also, it's a spiritual activity involving our mind and our heart. Present your bodies as living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. So, paradoxical, right? It's both body and and spirit. 
So that was chapter 9 of Disciplines of a Godly Man, book on worship. Moving ahead to chapter 10, integrity. Integrity, discipline of integrity. Again, it, it just strikes your ear as odd to say integrity is a discipline. It just seems like a, a character thing and not necessarily <clears throat> a discipline, but again, I hope to demonstrate that, and in the chapter it does. Again, he starts with the problem. In our culture, there seems to be a crisis of integrity, a lack of it across the board. According to a book he quoted called The Day America Told the Truth, only 13% of Americans consider all Ten Commandments as binding on us today. So 91% of Americans would lie regularly at home and at work. For example, half of workers admit to calling in sick when they're perfectly well. 50%. And again, this book was written in the mid-1990s. Their research uh, survey posed this question to Americans. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? Again, the 1990s, $10 million. 25% would abandon their families. 23% would be with a prostitute be a prostitute for a week. Become one. 23%. Listen to this one. 7% would kill a stranger for $10 million. 7 in 100 Americans. If this is at all true, you go to a baseball game, think about that. 7 in 100 of these folks might kill you if the price were right. So to the extent you believe those facts... Right, those presentations of, of what the pollsters have said. The point is that there's a crisis of integrity. I think we can adopt that. The broader picture is that there's been around us an ethical decline in measurable ways. For example, people pilfer supplies at work. They use company phones for personal long-distance calls. Again, that's dated because now all of our cell phones have a long-distance included, falsify income tax returns, commit plagiarism, which is stealing someone else's ideas, bribe to obtain a building permit, ignore construction specifications, illegally copy a computer program or song, steal time from an employer, exaggerate a product, tell people what they want to hear, though it's a stretch, and selectively obey the laws. That's the culture. But what about the church? We have to face a chilling fact, says our author, that there's little statistical difference between the ethical practices of the religious and the non-religious in our country. Is the church any different? What does God say about this? God spoke directly to the issue of integrity in Acts 5. If you remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira were in a, uh, examples of a time when people were selling property in order to give the donations to the church to advance the cause of Christ. So Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, sold uh, property, brought part of the money, but not all of the money, and told them it was all the money. No one said they had to bring all the money, but they said, we have brought you all the money. So this is what happened, Acts 5, 3. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Acts 5, 3-4. So the lesson from God is that our integrity matters to him, maybe especially when we approach him in worship per our last chapter study. So what are two uh, most common reasons that people would lie? Number one, to cover up something they did wrong. And number two, to keep things pleasant 
emotionally. Does this dress look good on me? <laughs> Things like that, right? Uh, this can include deceiving others by omission, not saying something to avoid offending another person. So in the world, and even in the church, true integrity is rare. Proverbs 20, verse 6, Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. This means that we have work to do, the discipline of integrity. Recovering our integrity is work that's worth it. Integrity is as beautiful as it is rare. Regaining and protecting integrity will take enormous effort. G.K. Chesterton said, quote, Morality, like art, consists in drawing a line somewhere. God's word draws our line, not the culture around us. God defines things, not our fellow citizens and influencers. God declares what is right and wrong, not those who want to shame us. So how do we recover and keep our integrity? From the beginning, starting now, before it all begins. Wesley Pippert gives this good advice for how to avoid an integrity breach. Do not do something wrong that first time. Repetition will come far easier. And Cicela Bach wrote, it's easy to tell a lie. It's hard to tell only one. It takes intentionality and discipline to be truthful in all that we say, which is the start of integrity. So, the chapter on integrity. We've covered uh, this morning a chapter on worship, a chapter on integrity, and now we're going back to our previous study. Two weeks ago, I left off with part of chapter 11 on uh, Westminster Confession of Faith on justification, and I promised I would return to the place of imputation versus double imputation, and I'm sure you're fascinated at this. Um, but it, it's a precise but needed uh, differentiation within our doctrine, and justification is one of the most important doctrines that we have. It's what we call the rallying cry of the Reformation. It's important to understand. So imputation versus double imputation is an aspect of justification I'd like to cover now. And if you're, uh, if you're in your green booklet there, you'll find the chapter on Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11. <clears throat> I have been declared not guilty. It's on justification and the main point of the whole chapter, the way I summarize it is, we thank God for his solution to our most perplexing need. Yes, there's a way for us as sinful people to again be right with God. And a quote from Romans 8, 30, those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also uh, glorified. So <clears throat> in section one and two, cover this idea of uh, imputation versus double imputation that uh, we deepen our thanks for the obedience of Christ, the only hope for our salvation. You can't justify yourself, so we come to Christ to impute his righteousness to, to us. And then uh, section two, the only way we receive justification is by faith. We must rest on Jesus. And then you see it under 11.2 where it says double imputation. That's what I'm talking about now. So imputation means to reckon to think of or to regard. So if you have Venmo, a, a banking app, and I have Venmo, this money transfer thing that happens on the phones, I Venmo money to you, I'm imputing money into your account. I'm depositing money to you. It's considered your money now. All right. So when an innocent man is reckoned or thought of to be guilty, 
he will complain that men are falsely imputing guilt to him. I didn't do it. They consider him to be what he actually is not. They consider him to be guilty, but he's not guilty. So it is with us in our relationship to God. God considers us to be what we in actuality were not. He considers us to be innocent, though in actuality we committed crimes and sins, spiritual crimes. We, we said the things we shouldn't have said. We um, spoke the things we shouldn't have spoken. We thought the things we should not have thought, and yet God considers us to be righteous. How does that happen? How does that get imputed to us, that different status, that different way of God reckoning us? That God is able to reckon us free from guilt. And the reason is that Christ placed himself in our place, in our room, in our stead. So God considered our guilt to belong to Christ. He was condemned even though he was not actually personally condemnable. Right, So that's leading into double imputation, that Christ actively obeyed, perfectly obeyed God's law, and passively obeyed, that is, fully suffering the penalty of the law against our sin. So the act of obedience is him doing everything right and getting an A-plus report card. The passive Obedience of Christ is him dying for us on the cross to make right our wrongs, to cleanse or cover what we did wrong. So um, our guilt becomes his. He's reckoned to be guilty on the cross when he in, in himself is actually not. So we, without the imputation of both, our guilt to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us there would be no basis for God to grant us justification. We don't get to go to heaven. I, I'm sorry if it sounds way too precise. If, if I lost you, I lost you. Maybe we can talk. But it's so important to understand uh, the gospel and how it is that we get made right with God. So because there is double imputation, God is able to declare us righteous in his sight and welcome us wholeheartedly into his heaven. So there's one ground for this justification, as you see on your handout, um, Philippians 3, 8 to 9, which is this. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for knowing for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him and having, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from me obeying the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It's called an alien righteousness. It's imputed to us, downloaded to us, transferred to us simply by us uh, expressing faith, trusting in Christ Jesus. His record becomes our record. It has to be a perfect record. It's a holy, holy, holy God. For us to get into his presence in heaven, it has to be a perfect record. That's what we get through Christ. All right. Um, <laughs> yes, Brian. Please. Yes. Um, he made him to become sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's your double imputation. Exactly. Right. Very good. I was just going to look it up and there you quoted it. Good, good, good. 
Second Corinthians 5.21. So I was um, planning now to go on to adoption, which I will, but before we leave justification, let me um, compare it to sanctification, and then we'll cover sanctification more in a few minutes. So if you see on your handout on page, I don't have the page number, but on chapter 11 page, under section 4, 11.4. I have a chart there. On the left is justification underlined. On the right is sanctification underlined. And so I think that's helpful now and then again when we get to sanctification to see the differences. In justification, we're declared holy, considered reckoned holy like we've just been talking. But in sanctification, we actually become better. We become more holy in our actual actions, our words, our thoughts and behavior. Justification, you declared holy. Sanctification, you become more holy. So there is a difference. Uh, Furthermore, under that list, under justification, God imputes the righteousness of Christ, whereas in sanctification, the Spirit infuses grace, a different word, infuses this to to give you something. I put oranges into your stocking, right? Uh, I put chocolate into your hand, infusing, giving grace. But that grace enables us to become more holy. Whereas in justification, sin is pardoned. In sanctification, sin is subdued, which means you you learn how to change the way you speak, change the way you you behave. Uh, On justification, it, it equally frees all believers from wrath. So all of us are 100% cleared, 100% holy, ready to enter heaven. Justification is complete, 100% that way. Whereas in sanctification, it's not equal in all believers. Some are more holy. Some are less mature. Some are farther along in Christ's likeness, and, and some are still working along. And some grow quickly. Some grow slowly. So it's different in all believers. So sanctification doesn't mean every Christian would now all of a sudden be as holy as they possibly could be. It's gradated. There's a variation in uh, the way that believers become sanctified, become sanctified, become more holy. And then justification, it's perfect now and always. So it's full, perfect, complete. You think of um, smacking down the gavel to declare. You have to declare guilty or innocent. There's only two options. So justification says you're 100% not guilty. You're, you're cleared before heaven. You're innocent before God. That is justification. Perfect now already, and always in the future. It never, it never gets tarnished, uh, put into question. Our, our acceptance by God, our innocence before God, our justification before God is locked down. But now if you go to sanctification, our sanctification is not perfect in this life. Your growth pattern is like this. If you're going to chart it out, the best way to chart it out is put a yo-yo in the hand of a man walking uphill because you go like this. Okay, that's how you chart out sanctification. It's not perfect. You got work to do. I've got work to do. But we're growing on the whole. In general, we're going up. We're getting better. If you compare to a year ago, you ordinarily could say, yeah, I'm more holy now. I'm I'm better now. I learned some things. But if you compare to a week ago, you might be worse off now than you were then because you're in a funk. Okay, so justification versus sanctification. And then um, I'd like to read... Westminster Larger Catechism, question 77. I thought I had printed it in here, but I don't see it. I don't have a way to put it in front of you. You don't have it because the, the 
Trinity hymn books only have the shorter catechism, but just hang in there while I read this. I think because of what we just discussed, you'll be able to grasp this. Wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that in justification, God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. In the former, that is justification, sin is pardoned. In the other, sanctification, it is subdued. One doth freely doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God and that perfectly in this life that they never fall into condemnation. The other, sanctification, is neither equal in all nor in this life perfect in any but growing up to perfection. So that was Westminster Larger Catechism 77. Um, by the way, we, we differ from the Roman Catholics in all of this. They, they believe that a sacrament makes you holy at that moment. So if, if you go to the Mass and you receive the sacrament, you're holy for that moment, unless you swear on the way home and then you lost it, right? So that is very different from, from how we view things. Um, they, they believe in something, I guess you could call it a momentary sinlessness, um, where uh, we believe that a person can fall into sin and struggle with it, and yet before God never reach a place of being in condemnation. So, uh, okay, I better move on. So let's go to uh, chapter 12 on adoption. All right, it's a, it's a shorter chapter, but that doesn't mean it's less important. It is all in... Uh, in one paragraph, which is very large. And so what I've done on your handout, if you're looking at chapter 12, is I've tried to outline the seven major headings that are covered in this one paragraph. Adoption is is one of the most uh, welcome and warm of the teachings of the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. it's, It's comforting to us. So let me ask you this. When, When you hear the word adoption, what do you think of? So I think a short definition for us, the way we use it in the English-speaking world, is being brought into a family. Right? Adoption is being included now. It's usually a child that's adopted into a family. But a full definition of adoption um, is, of course, here, but maybe a, a more easy one to grasp is, is Westminster's Shorter Catechism, question 34. That you could find in your Trinity hymnal. It says this, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace wherein we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So it's an act, not a process. We think of adoption as this giant process in which you pay court fees and wait for the verdict to come months from now. But God doesn't have to wait on people. He just makes decisions, right? So God takes action. Adoption is an action. And in that action, we are received into the number. The number of what? The number of God's people. So we're automat- not automatically, but instantly brought into uh, the kingdom of God, the family of God, the children of God, and at that time already have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So we could say, going back to trying to define adoption, adoption is an act of transfer. 
So back to our illustration from our culture, if a child is in an orphanage, the transfer is being brought into a family now. So for God, for us to be transferred, we once were not his people, and now we are his people. We once were not we once were under his wrath, and now we're under his favor. So a John Murray, a, a professor back in the uh, 30s in Westminster Seminary, wrote in re- his book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, he wrote this, quote, Adoption, as the term clearly implies, is an act of transfer from an alien family into the family of God himself. Now, alien doesn't mean like space creatures, alien. It simply means foreign from a foreign family, some other family, into the family of God himself. So, in uh, my heading or my main point, I'm trying to summarize the whole chapter in one sentence. It's this in bold print at the top. We are in awe of the privilege that we can speak to the master of the universe with the most intimate of terms. We call him Father. So, um, we have this amazing position and status before God, the closest possible intimacy and the fullest possible access to God. If, if you were just asked in general terms, how would you describe our relationship to God? If you didn't have the Bible, I think the best you could come up with is servant to a master. Like creature to creator, we have to do what the one in power says, um, that he's very kind, but the best we could hope for is servants to a master. But the fact that that's not our status, our primary status is not servants to a master. Instead, our primary status before God is children to a father is so much nicer, right? It's like instead of being brought to an orphanage, you're being brought to a home. Um, You belong, and there's that close relationship. So we used to be outside, alienated from God. We have become his members of his family. We used to be children of wrath. Now we are his workmanship. If you think about the old self versus new self language of the New Testament, my old self includes my lies and my anger, and my new self is being renewed in knowledge. I used to be in darkness, and now I'm in the kingdom of light. My father used to be the devil. Now my father is the Holy One, God himself. I used to be blinded by the spirit of this age, and now I see light and know the glory of God. I used to be perishing, and now the life of Jesus lives in my body used to be slaves, and now we have the full rights of sons. We're heirs. used to be enemies of God, and now great love has been uh, lavished upon us. So one main verse that um, holds true for this concept of adoption is Ephesians 1, uh, passage from verse 2 to verse 6. Ephesians 1, 2 to 6. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Um, just a comment about the word sons there in Ephesians 1. It's not meant to exclude females. It's meant to say that you truly have inheritance rights. And in the ancient world, it was sons who had inheritance rights. So uh, women were included with their husband, and then girls, when they were born, were included with their father until they got married, and then they were included with their husband. So they were always included. 
And so the language of sons can be used there. But in our modern culture, it'd be better to say sons and daughters. You just you can't necessarily say that's what the verse can be translated as. It just interpreted that way. You have to understand the, the background there. So on these seven things, you have God is not the father of all men, a common liberal error. He's the creator of all men, um, but he's only the father of those who are believers. All Christians are children of God. Uh, Jesus is the unique son of God. It doesn't do anything to change his status that we covered earlier about his uh, mediatorship and his position as the only son of God. We are joint heirs with Christ by adoption because he is heir of the world. We are heirs together with him. All, everything we get is derivative from him and because we're united to him. Section or 5.5 about adoption. One of the best privileges of adoption is the privilege of prayer. We're enabled to pray by his spirit, draws us close. Um, we have access to him as our father as, as others do not. Six, God treats us as his own precious children, having compassion on us. Um, somehow I came up with these six, word, five words that start with P, but uh, pity doesn't come across nice in English. It's more, better word is compassion, but pity, protection, providence, paddling, and perseverance. Uh, that God has compassion. He um, keeps us safe. He provides for us, he'll discipline us, and he'll take us all, all the way to the end in heaven. And the last one, number seven, recover your sense of wonder. We're children of no one less than the living God himself. Um, it's good that we say it a lot, but if it, we say it a lot, it can become just rote. Say, of course, we're children of God, but a, uh, don't let the privilege of that get lost on you. Uh, don't get the idea that because of the shortness of the chapter, the teaching about adoption was a nice but secondary element of the Christian life uh, from these authors is very, very important. Uh, there are over 200 different references to God as Father in the New Testament. And um, it's one of the um, most important and yet, you know, in a sense, neglected um, teachings. There should be more more being written on it. G.I. Packer wrote this. I'll end with this on adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So that from G.I. Packer. All right. We go on to section 13, chapter 13, on sanctification. Again, we, we started to unpack this a little with um, connections to justification, but now we want to take a look at it directly. So, one thing we could do is use the shorter catechism to introduce it. What is sanctification? The work, notice, not act but work. An act is when God lays down the gavel or does something definitive at a, in a decision. An act is when God commits himself to an ongoing process. So sanctification is an ongoing process. The work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live under righteousness. 
So, um, this chapter could be summarized with my one sentence across the top. We are so very thankful that God continues to make us more like his son. So there's uh, three, three sections in this chapter. It's a short chapter, but the example here is here of the ability of our authors to state very large areas of biblical theology in an extraordinarily brief way. There's so much packed into these three things. The first section... We could say, summarize it by saying it talks about the radical nature of sanctification. The second section gives us a true understanding of sanctification. And the third section talks about the progressiveness of sanctification. Um, so notice and keep in mind that it is the work of God's free grace, the ongoing work of God's free grace, by which we are these two things, Renewed in the image of God. Remember that we're made in the image of God originally, but we kind of mess that up. It gets marred by our lives and, and inanimate originally. We're renewed then in the image of God through Christ. And secondly, we're enabled to die to sin and live to righteousness. We're enabled more and more to, in real time, in actuality, stop sinning more and more and start living right more and more. Thus, the um, language of the chapter progresses. So, for the first section, for example, we could say this, that we're already made alive, and so it's expected that we'll grow, which is a breach from sin and death at the core of our being. Uh, we, we recognize in this, this first section that we are already made alive, and so sanctification isn't the process that brings us to life. Um, I think what I'll do is read this section out to us. Sanctification is what is an ongoing work of God for those who are already made alive. So let me read this out. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, remember that's our word for new life, new birth from above, those who are born again, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified. So we could think of the new birth from above or salvation as an instance of sanctification, right? It does make us more like Christ when we're converted, right, to be fair. And then we're further sanctified from there forward continuously. Um, so going on, really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the domination of the whole body of sin is destroyed. And the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, which is put to death, and they, more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So before you were converted, sin had domination over you. After you're converted, the domination of sin is broken once and for all in Christ Jesus. And so in that new state, what is it that dominates you? Grace and Christ. And so... The domination of the body sin is destroyed, and instead we're dominated uh, by Christ. And he's bringing us along in our growth pattern. So then, if you go to um, section 2, it talks about the nature of sanctification. What, what is it? So let me read section 2. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, every part of us, right? Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war? 
the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So we could say, if it doesn't confuse you too much, sanctification is war. Who are the armies of the war? You and you. (laughs) Your sinful nature and your spirit. The war is the way that you were and the way that you're becoming. And the the way you're becoming is dominant. You are growing. And um, so that's why we we could see the phrase further sanctified as referring back to our regeneration. Um, By what means is sanctification developed? By means of the word of God and the spirit dwelling in them. For example, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So Jesus is praying to God the Father about us, right? All of God's people saying, sanctify them. And what's the method? His truth, uh, his, his word. Um, back in John 15, Jesus had described himself as the vine and we as, as the fruit of that vine, right? Uh, the fruit bearing of the believer united to Christ is not simply a mystical idea. It's something that happens in real time in concrete ways in our actual growth. We stop doing wrong things with our hands and feet. We stop saying wrong things with our mouths. As the believer continues to abide in Christ, that a believer is changing, growing. Um, the instrument that Christ uses is the scriptures. How do we grow with the word? So it's a, a radical breach with our past foundation. We could go through Romans 6, um, how we are brought away from the realm of death into walking in the realm of the newness of life. Um, So in other words, one way we could say it is, how do you grow and change? One way is to get rid of all the bad habits. Another way is to fill your life with so many good habits, there's no time for the bad habits anymore. So there's two ways in which Christ is causing us to grow, to put off wrong and to put on right. So um, the, the process of sanctification continues that way, and then I'll read the third, third section. In which war, so we said it's a war. In that war, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, you're losing, right? Yet... Through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. You will win. You are winning. You have won, right? And so the saints grow in Christ, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So there's a long-term perspective on our war, me versus me, you versus you. And the long-term perspective is because Christ has already died and risen again, because he's coming for us, because he sent his spirit and gave us his word, We are going to win. That's how it ends. That's the long-term perspective. Working back from there, we can say we're going to grow from now till then. So in the Christian's battle with sin in his own life, there may be times when the sin seems to have recovered the earlier ground. You feel like you're losing. You feel like you haven't grown in the last 10 years. You're back to where you were 10 years ago all of a sudden. But Hebrews 12 reminds us there's sin that clings so closely that a Christian could fear he's been overcome by a sin again. And although that may take place temporarily, 
the victory that is actually your victory, that is actually your destiny, it's going to happen, will show itself to be true again. You will begin to conquer in real time. You will grow and become different. And so when you look at, at the whole war, there may be times and battles in which when you view that battle in and of itself exclusively, it would seem to suggest that your army has in fact lost entirely the war. But in fact, the reality is that your army had simply been badly damaged in one particular battle and it's not over yet. So the wound is not the end of uh, the entire war. So we rely on the sanctifying spirit and thus grow in grace and the fear of the Lord. So the authors did not encourage their congregations um, to get out of Romans 7 into Romans 8. You know, Romans 7 is where I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. And Romans 8 is where I'm a child of God and I know that for sure, that the teaching of Romans 7 and 8 are not chronologically sequential, but as different perspectives on one great reality of what it means to have a life in Christ. To the end of our days, we can still say out of Romans 7, I'm still doing the things I shouldn't be doing and don't want to do, and I'm still not doing the things I want to do and set out to do and really trying hard to do. I'm still a Romans 7 Christian late in life, long after I've grown and I'm more and more holy in Christ. And I'm still a Romans 8 Christian from day one when I'm barely conquering anything. I still am adopted in Christ and belong to him. I'm completely regenerate throughout my being, yet there's still pockets of resistance in me to God. So it's not good Ben, bad Ben at war each other like the yin and the yang. No way. That is not the Christian view. That's not the biblical view. That's not what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying. That's not what this chapter is saying. Not good Ben versus bad Ben, always at war. Instead, what it is, is I am good Ben in Christ. Yet in me, there are these pockets where I behave like a sinner, and I'm ashamed of it, and I'm working on that. That is the biblical outlook. So the great issue about me has already been decided you want to use war analogy, right, to World War II, D-Day, the decisive battle was won and fought, fought and won. The enemy could never recover from that point forward. But not until V-Day, the victory is universally recognized. So I could say now I'm dead to the dominion of sin. does not have control over me. I'm dead to sin. And I'm free from the reign of sin because I'm in Christ. So it's dangerous for people to think that there's some part of them that's untouched by God's redemptive power. No, he's touched all of us, all parts of us. The war is everywhere. So uh, John, John Owen, I got two minutes, so this is good. John Owen, a, a famous uh, theologian uh, years ago, said there's uh, two problems for uh, church leaders, for pastors and elders, uh, to shepherd people, to keep in mind. There's two big problems. Only two. (laughs) The two main problems, perhaps. Number one, persuading people who are under the dominion of sin that they really are. Unbelievers, right? Addicts will say to you, I can quit anytime I want. Oh, no, you can't. You're stuck. So problem number one, persuading those under the control or dominion of sin that they really are. And the second problem is persuading those who are not under the dominion of sin that they are not. 
you are not under the dominion of sin. You can quit anytime you want. <laughs> and you should. And you must. And you're working on it. And you're getting better, right? So it's basically the Christian versus the non-Christian. To persuade the non-Christian, who's under the dominion of sin, that he really is, and he needs Christ. And then to the Christian, who's been released from the dominion of sin, praise God, you've been released from the dominion of sin. You can grow to be more and more holy. You can grow fast. You can grow a lot. You can grow now. Not under the dominion of sin. So as we avail in the means of grace, uh, the word, sacraments, and prayer, uh, fellowship, the resurrection of life of Christ gains its ascendancy progressively and more steadily. It doesn't mean we'll be free from seasons of sin or temptation. But it does mean we'll grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as it says in Second Peter three, eighteen. All right.